Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The core problem of climate change is that there's too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And though it still only forms a tiny bit of the air all around us, the amount that industrial societies have added to the global mix is enough to deeply change the world's biosphere. So why not just pull the carbon dioxide out of the air? It's a solution so simple that of course scientists and engineers have explored the concept. For many years, it was seen as on the edge of plausibility, but now, thanks to several billion dollars in recent legislation, a real industry for carbon dioxide removal is taking shape, including a few Bay Area companies. Stay tuned for this latest edition of Climate Fix, our collab with the KQED Science Desk, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. All right, this is our latest edition of Climate Fix. That's Forum's collaboration with KQED Science Desk, exploring climate solutions. Today, we're going to talk about pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it permanently. Literally quite the reverse of the last century's fossil fuel economy. This is different, as we'll see, from carbon capture and sequestration, which had been proposed as a way to continue to burn fossil fuels. And it obviously does not obviate the need to limit the amount of fossil fuels Uh, that we burn. But in a recent intergovernmental panel on climate change report, that group of scientists has come to describe atmospheric carbon dioxide removal as a necessary component of our technological future. The real question is how much and how soon, and can we avoid the moral hazard of relying too heavily on the idea of carbon removal sometime in the future over emissions cuts we know we can make now? So let's get into it. It's climate fix time. Joining me this morning... Uh, from our KQED science team is climate reporter Laura Clivens. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And our first guest is Danny Cullenward. He's a climate economist and a lawyer focused on the design and implementation of scientifically grounded climate policy. Welcome, Danny. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So, Laura, for the purposes of this discussion, how do we define sort of carbon removal? Sure. Um, So carbon removal is pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and locking it away for some period of time. So that could be decades up to thousands of years. Um, As you said, scientists say that this is necessary. um, And it is certainly not a substitute for cutting greenhouse gas emissions, which really that should be the 90 percent of what we're doing as we 
make our way towards zero, a net zero world. Um, And then carbon removal can take the form of things that we're very familiar with, like nature-based solutions, um, forests and um, grasslands and capturing carbon in the soil, um, and also engineered solutions. We simply don't have enough land or space or time to rely solely on nature-based solutions at Mm -hmm. this point. Um, And so that's what a lot of we'll be talking about today is some of these engineered solutions. You know, Dan Cullenward, um, I think for people to really understand what the sort of technological challenge in here, it's worth revisiting how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, like as a percentage. Like we know that the that it has grown over time, which is the core problem of, of global warming. But can you walk us through sort of the challenge of taking out what really is uh, a trace gas in our atmosphere? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we've been putting CO2 in the atmosphere uh, since the Industrial Revolution at you know massive scales that have fundamentally fundamentally altered the climate already. And CO2 in the atmosphere is about 420 parts per million. That is to say, 420 out of every million molecules is a is a CO2 molecule. And that, you know, it's a really daunting number because it's it's actually quite small, even though it's having a substantial impact on warming the planet over time. So if you're trying to remove that by filtering the air, for example, it is very much a trace gas, and it's a, it's pretty difficult to do. Although it's something, as we'll talk about, a lot of folks are thinking about doing. Yeah. So you know, when I was coming up in this green tech world. You know, direct air capture uh, was what this was called. And it was often kind of laminated with carbon capture and sequestration from point sources like a power plant. Um, How different are the technologies that go into these two kind of pathways? There are some similarities in terms of the technologies and some of the things we want to do, but the application and the purpose is really different. You, you hit on one of the key differences. Carbon capture and storage is a point source solution. It's a, a technology you put on the top of a smokestack, for example, to capture some of the pollution that would otherwise go into the atmosphere. That's better than putting it in the atmosphere, but it's actually not you know, contributing to net reductions. Carbon removal with things like direct air capture is about literally pulling the CO2 back out of the atmosphere, undoing the consequence of the pollution we've caused so far. Hmm. Um, So it's a very different thing, but some of the specific technologies and ways of storing CO2 for a long time, they do have some parallels and overlaps, but the applications, I think, are are fundamentally different. So in your view, how should this kind of carbon removal fit into our overall framework for combating climate change? I think this is a really tough and controversial question because I think critics of carbon removal have pointed out how easily it could become a distraction from cutting emissions. And and we've certainly seen evidence from that, frankly, all around the world and in many conversations. At the same time, the climate science community has gotten more and more clear that CO2 is essentially a forever problem. And if you want to mitigate that problem, you want to actually stop making the planet warmer or maybe someday in the future actually start to bring it back down to the normal levels we used to experience, you're going to need to go and combat the pollution at the source, not just cutting emissions, but also pulling the CO2 emissions down out of the atmosphere from where we've been putting them for over 100 years. Yeah. Laura, um, we're going to bring on some companies in the next segment that are going to talk about their specific technologies for sort of capturing the carbon dioxide. But let's say we're able to do that piece of it, right? And we're able to like pull this carbon dioxide out of the air, concentrate it. Where do we put it then? Um, so there's there's different ways to deal with that. But um, for example, some companies are actually pumping it back down underground hundreds or thousands of feet into geological uh, formations underground. Others um, are reusing it um, or putting in 
into things like cement or mm-hmm. some are even capturing it and thinking it might be something that they could use um, to make the bubbles in your bubbly water. Mm-hmm. Um, so in our state, how much carbon are we planning to pull out of the air to achieve our climate goal sort of going forward? Um, so so what our state has has laid out in our climate plan for California is that by 2045, we need to be pulling 100 million tons of carbon dioxide out of the year out of the air, and that is about equal to the amount of pollution that a 250 gas-fired uh, power plants would create annually. Hmm. So that's a a lot. I mean, we're basically saying from an industry that's like very small right now, we've got to scale very quickly. That's right. Yeah. Um, one one entrepreneur who I spoke to said that. The amount that the industry needs to scale, he likened it to it's a the size of a basketball right now, and it needs to become the size of the Golden Gate Bridge. That's how much oh. we need to scale. Um, Danny Cullenward, sort of internationally and globally, there are some larger players, right, who've been involved in direct air capture of various kinds, carbon removal of various kinds. Can you just kind of walk us, like paint, paint the picture of the sort of global industry as it exists now? Well, there's, you know, to be honest, there's not all that much. There are a few demonstration facilities that are out there. I think, you know, some of these technologies have been proven at the demonstration scale, but, you know, we're a drop in the bucket in terms of what needs to happen. And and I think people in the Bay Area get excited about scaling things quickly. I just want to emphasize, this is like planetary physics. I mean, this is massive, massive stuff. It's going to be on the scale of the industrial activity uh, that we've caused over the last, you know, 100 years if we start to really try and undo that damage. So we're starting from a couple of demonstration facilities and we have a long way to go. Yeah. What has U.S. climate policy so far done to incentivize the creation of this technology and this industry? I think there's a couple of main efforts to point to at the U.S. level. There's there's some parallel support at the state. The main two policies that the United States has pursued is there's a, a very generous tax credit that was reauthorized and expanded in the recent uh, Inflation Reduction Act that passed uh, last year. And there's also, from a related bill, some funding to start to deploy direct air capture in particular, which is one of these carbon removal technologies, um, through some government-run grants where a bunch of companies and states are going to be competing to host those sites. California also has a policy to encourage uh, and with financial support some of these facilities. One thing to note is that almost all of the federal and state support targets just direct air capture, which is just one of many of the pathways we probably want to explore to think about drawing down atmospheric pollution. What are the other ones? Talk to us a little bit about well, you know, direct air capture, I think, has gotten a lot of attention, and there's a lot to recommend it. We'll, we'll probably talk more about it here. Um, some of the other approaches include things like enhanced rock weathering, where you're literally trying to form, you know, rock and precipitate CO2 out of the atmosphere into physical form. Um, there's people who are uh, creating bio-oil out of waste biomass residue and thinking about sticking that bio-oil underground, which also sticks CO2 underground. Um, there's a variety of applications that are out there in the oceans where people are talking about either sinking biomass or maybe directly intervening to increase the alkalinity of the oceans to draw more CO2 out of the atmosphere. So there's a variety of efforts that are out there. It all gets very, very complicated because we're basically talking about transforming the global climate system, but this time intentionally to mitigate the effects of the harms we've done. Mm. Laura, why don't you give us a bit of an overview of the kind of local scene here as different companies have gotten involved? You've written about some of them uh, in recent times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have a handful of them here in the Bay Area, and then there's... um, several around the country and the world. Um, 
But uh, a few nearby, we have some that one that I visited recently called um, Charm Industrial. And what they're doing is they are intervening in a natural carbon cycle. Um, It's an interesting process, very interesting to see. Basically, what they're doing is they're taking waste from agricultural fields and they are essentially heating it up extremely quickly and then cooling it down and creating some products out of that, one of which is a, a black kind of viscous goo and uh, smells like barbecue sauce. And they are <laughs> pumping it back down uh, under the earth in in some test sites in, in Kansas, actually. Um, and then their theory is that it will stay down there for thousands and thousands of years, essentially permanently locking it away. Um, so that is one company. They're working on a few other things as well. Um, we also have a few companies that are going to be joining us this hour. Um, one of them is Heirloom, which recently had a, a successful, they've been taking carbon out of the air using limestone, um, and they recently put it in cement. Um, and then we also have a few other startups um happening around the Bay Area. We'll hear from some of them. Another thing that's interesting that's starting here is initiatives to kickstart financing Mm -hmm. these. Um, So we've seen some companies uh, sort of band together and say, we're going to put almost a billion dollars towards these technologies to get them moving. Right now, they're very expensive. What kind of companies? Like, uh... Yeah. So um, so they're led by uh, a team at Stripe. Um, Mm -hmm. So we also see Meta and Alphabet, McKinsey. Um, and they are putting money into this problem in the hopes of spurring along the industry and accelerating it. Yeah. We're talking about carbon removal as one piece of our overall plan of combating climate change here in California and around the world. And we're going to be joined after the break by a couple of the Bay Area companies who are involved with that effort. We're joined this morning by Laura Clavin's climate reporter for KQED, as well as Danny Cullenward, who's a climate economist and a lawyer focused on the design and implementation of grounded climate policy. We would love to hear from you. With Climate Fix, we want to take your questions about these new new science and new technology. What are your questions about carbon removal, how it works, and how feasible it is? Do you trust it? Uh, if you're someone who's been involved in this uh, this industry or this field for a while, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email your comments, your questions to forum at kqed.org. And of course, on all the social media things, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Climate Fix right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. This is Climate Fix, which is our uh, collaboration with KQD science team. This morning, we're talking about carbon removal um, as one of the solutions to combat climate change. And we're talking with some Bay Area companies that are involved with that effort. Uh, we've already been joined by Danny Cullenward, a climate economist and a lawyer focused on the design and implementation of climate policy. And of course, we've got Laura Clivens, climate reporter for KQD here with us. want to add in our Bay Area companies here. Uh, Joining me here in the studio, we've got Noah McQueen, co-founder and head of research for Heirloom, a carbon capture technology company. Welcome, Noah. Thanks for having me. And we've also got Josh Santos, co-founder and CEO of Noya. Noya focuses on direct air capture to pull excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as well. Welcome, Josh. Excited to be here today. Um, Let's start with you, Noah. Tell us about your company, how long you've been around, and what you actually do. Yeah, so our company has been around for just over 18 months, um, and we are using naturally occurring minerals to remove carbon dioxide directly from our air. So this mineral that we use is called limestone. If you've ever been climbing, it's the chalk you put on your hands. If you've ever had an upset stomach, it's the Tums that you would ingest. And what we do is we give our mineral superpowers. We put the limestone into an electric, renewable-powered reactor where it breaks apart into two parts. You get your CO2, which we partner with other entities to store either underground or in cement, which we recently demonstrated with our partners at Carbon Cure. The other material is calcium oxide, and you can think of this like a sponge for CO2. We put it out, exposed to the atmosphere, and it'll suck up all of the CO2 nearby. Um, And in doing that, it reforms the limestone or calcium carbonate, so we can continue cycling it to remove CO2 from our atmosphere. So kind of use the rock as this sponge or this like kind of trap for for sucking up the carbon dioxide. Um, Why does this work? (laughs) Like, um, we've got limestone out there just sitting around. Um, Walk me through like what you actually have to do to it and the what it would look like if someone was there and, and look at it. Yeah, so limestone essentially looks like flour in our process. And what it happens is we we give this mineral superpower. So it's not just limestone. When we take its CO2 off, it's much happier with that CO2. So when we have this calcium oxide, it's much more stable and much more comfortable when it takes up a CO2 and reforms that calcium carbonate. So it is... Um, from a thermodynamics and reaction perspective, just much easier for it to exist as calcium carbonate. So we actually give it superpowers by taking off its yeah. CO2 and asking it to take up more. Yeah. And so it naturally would, limestone naturally would absorb carbon, is that correct? And you're just yeah. sort of accelerating that process? We are. Yeah. And a lot though, right? Because it's it's something like you guys are doing in the scale of like hours or a day, right? Versus like say a year to take up the same amount of CO2. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, what is the sort of nature of the technology, right? It's like it's getting the con- the conditions of that rock to be in the right place so that you can speed up that process as, as quickly as possible? Yeah, absolutely. So we are, you know, we're developing a, a technology that allows us to expose this material to the air to take up CO2 as fast as possible. We're, we're making trays, 
putting the material out on trays, stacking it in the vertical direction to make sure we're responsible for things like land use, and also ensuring that our material stays in its optimum place to take up CO2 from air. Yeah. And where are you sort of in the life of the company? Like, how much funding have you received? You've got this sort of, you know, pilot plant, but like, are you planning to scale up to larger sizes soon? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, we we have a pilot plant that's currently capturing CO2 from the air in Brisbane, just south of where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, in From a funding perspective, we, we closed our Series A last year, raised just over $50 million with some of the biggest names in kind of climate venture capital, breakthrough energy ventures, lower carbon capital, carbon direct. And the next stage is we are really planning orders of magnitude scale up of this technology. Yeah. Last thing. Um You've got to put some energy back into the system, right, in order to pull the carbon dioxide out again uh, so that you can you can store it for, for the long term. Um, how do you get that energy cost sort of down so that you make sure that, uh, you know, it's, it's a net energy uh, – that its net energy profile is good? Yeah, so with all carbon re- removal technologies, we have to consider the resources we put into them and how much carbon that releases to make sure we're actually net taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. The way we do that is trying to hit the absolute minimum energy floor that we can possibly achieve. Um, this is through you know developing more sustainable processes, cutting the waste in what we're doing, um, and making sure that um, we are being as effective and efficient as possible where we are using energy. So the biggest energy demand is pulling the CO2 off of the material for all direct air capture approaches. And our approach is to make that as minimal as possible. Yeah. Cool. That was uh, Noah McQueen describing uh, Heirloom Carbon's approach to uh, carbon removal. Um, Josh uh, Santos, tell us about Noya and your company. Yeah, I would, would love to. Noya is developing a process to both separate CO2 from the ambient air that we all breathe and remove it permanently from our skies. We're doing this with the material that we've developed, our filter for CO2, that's composed of two different starting materials. The first is a material called activated carbon. This is an incredibly common material that's used in huge amounts in many different industries today. It's used to filter different components, it's used to, to clean different types of streams and we use it for removing CO2 from the air. The second material is a proprietary material that has similar applications in large-scale uh, industry, but this second material is reactive with CO2. So we take these two materials, we make them into a form factor that allows us to capture large amounts of CO2 with low energy input. Basically, imagine a cube with these air channels that flow through it to, to, to capture CO2 within. And um, and that allows us to to get a lot of CO2 and uh, give it to some of our partners that will pump it underground for permanent removal from our atmosphere. Another way I've heard Josh describe this is as a, a Brita filter for the air, which I found <laughs> to be very helpful. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly right. And Brita filters also use activated carbon, the same exact material that we're using. Ah. So it's it's the same same starting point. You know, one of the things that I've heard uh, Josh, different carbon removal companies say is they need to get their materials need to be like very common and very cheap, right? Because you're going to have to scale this up to incredible size. Um, the proprietary material that you're using is it possible to get that and you know to think about that as something that could be produced in those kind of huge quantities? It, it already is. Okay. It, it is produced in huge quantities, and it's something that we are buying from from you know many different large suppliers today, and in amounts that are fairly low cost. We keep it proprietary for you know trade secret and IP reasons, but it's something that is sourceable today from the open market. Okay. And where are you all in your sort of trajectory as a company right now? 
We are currently in the scale-up phase. So we have uh, we have some early prototypes of this type of technology in our office that's located right in the dog patch in San Francisco. And we are currently working to scale this up alongside some injection partners that we have been talking to for quite some time. We aim to be removing CO2 from the atmosphere by the end of this year and delivering credits to some of our earliest customers. Yeah. Um, Danny Cullenward, how do you see California positioned as a sort of, uh, I don't know, a nursery for these types of companies because of our efforts at you know, combating climate change being pretty early? You know, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. It's a it's a great place to be. I think a lot of the you know sharpest people thinking and working on these issues are based here. There's a lot of the investment coming from venture capital that's here. There's not yet a ton of support for deployment uh, of early mm-hmm. stage technologies. So you know, I think some of the you know great companies that are out there thinking about this work are also talking about their demonstration plants being somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and the state doesn't really have a framework yet for how it wants to deploy what what at least according to the state plan is going to be a massive amount in the coming decades. So that's all really at the very beginning stages, uh, but it's been a place because of the intellectual activity and the history of tech activity where a lot of people are starting out. Yeah. Um, Noah, what do you think is the biggest challenge that your company faces, like kind of right now, not in the long term, but like sort of right now to, to make that jump from, you know, pilot plant to sort of something big? Well, I guess I, I think one of the biggest challenges generally that we touched on a little bit earlier is is the scaling piece. It is coming up with, you know, meeting the enormous amount of CO2 that we actually have to remove from the atmosphere is kind of a daunting task, but it's also incredibly motivating. For us, one of the, the biggest challenges that we have is actually bringing on like very talented people to join the team who really want to make a big difference on climate, whether it's scientists and engineers commercialization individuals, technicians, like across the board, we need an all hands on deck for climate. Um, and, you know, we're, we're trying to make this big change and, excuse me, growing our team. It's exceptionally important that we bring people on to help us tackle some of the technical challenge as well as some of like more of, of the political challenges that we face in the deployment. And those are just the finding sites to do the actual deployment of your of your technology. Absolutely. Finding sites um, and developing how we engage with communities as we develop those sites. Yeah. Um, Josh, uh, same question to you. Like, what's your sort of like immediate term biggest challenge right now? I, I I'd largely agree with with Noah. I think that scaling is a, is a big challenge, not just from a from a people perspective, but also from a supply chain perspective. We talked about the materials that we're using to capture CO two, and we can get those fairly easily. But when you start looking at some of the other components that are involved in running direct air capture processes, like the ones that you know are being designed today, we need lots of other things besides the materials. Things like sensors and and electrical components that have pretty long lead times that have not yet fully recovered from some of the supply shocks that we saw mm. in the middle of the pandemic. So I think that there are a lot of different things that we're doing to be creative with these specific ways that we shortcut some of these supply challenges, but they are definitely out there and and uh, something that we're working to address head on. Yeah. Danny Cullenward, you know, from your perspective, how much is it going to need to cost to remove a, a ton of CO2 sort of to, to make this work? Like how much does the price have to come down and how will that play out with our sort of emissions reductions uh, and the cost of those? 
It's a great question and also a really difficult one to answer because I think the, the technologies and approaches that actually pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and keep it in a place that is going to be staying out of the atmosphere for long enough to really make a difference, they cost a lot of money right now. And, you know, typical numbers you hear are 500 to more than $1,000 a ton. Um, I think most people think that the cost needs to come down closer to $100 a ton over time. And for comparison, we have uh, a carbon pricing policy here in the state of California that uh, costs right now just a little under $30 a ton. So you can see if something's more than like tenfold the sort of cost we're charging polluters right now, there's a there's a disconnect. And that's part of the long-term trajectory is trying to figure out how to bring those costs down and also recognizing that because for decades and, and over a century, we've been putting the CO2 up in the atmosphere, you know, the bill is going to come due if we want to maintain a stable climate. And, and that's something that people are going to need to start talking about seriously. Yeah. You know, Laura Clements, uh, Joe writes in to say, you know, at the scale that we're talking about, which is, say, like sort of large scale, how do all these technologies get the energy that they need to actually do the carbon capture? It sounds like we need even more investment mm -hmm. in renewable energy to be able to power all of this carbon capture. That's a really interesting question. Yeah, and it's one that I think Noah alluded to um, earlier, something that these companies are, are thinking of in, when they think about the life cycle of all that they are doing um, that one company that I recently profiled, uh, they are actually siting their machinery like right next to a field, for example, so that they can cut down on transportation costs. They're looking at using um, a product that comes out of like, this is the company that essentially heats up uh, waste, agricultural waste stuff that you're not going to use, like walnut shells or the the husk of a corn. Um and makes it into a product that contains carbon. Uh, one of their products is a gas that they're potentially thinking, oh, maybe this could actually, um, we can use it to uh, to energize our process um, as a way to do that. And then locating like a little container, essentially a container right mm -hmm. on site there mm -hmm. up next to a field. Um, yeah, so definitely a consideration. Yeah. And, you know, Danny, I think one of the, estimates I saw from the Air Resources Board, you know, just kind of like the, the lead regulator on these things, would be that uh, 80 million metric tons of carbon would require 100 terawatt hours worth of energy. Like, how does, like, how would you compare, I'll give a, the comparison for people so that they can understand that kind of scale. I mean, it's it's frankly, it's just massive if we rely on the energy intensive approaches for carbon removal. And, you know, to be honest, 100 terawatt hours is too big for me to come up with a quick example. I mean, it is a massive, massive amount of energy. Yeah. It's like so, a good chunk of the amount of electricity that we use as a state. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a substantial chunk of that. Yeah, it's it's huge. And I think this is part of the sort of scaling problem. It's both, you know, I think from a company perspective, there's a lot of opportunity to build things and get things done. But we really need to start to reckon with the fact that unless we rapidly cut emissions, and even if we also rapidly cut emissions, we're going to need to be engaged in a generational industrial project to undo this damage. It is not a small thing. It is not an afterthought. It is something we will be dealing with over the course of our lives and the lives of our kids. Yeah. No, how do you think about this from your perspective, like within the company? I mean, obviously, you you all can see the same numbers that, that we can about how much electricity this would take. Um, so how do you you know approach that? Yeah, I think we think a lot about intentional siting. Um, and 
where we can co-locate our facility to purpose-built renewable electricity. And this is additional renewable to to decarbonizing the grid. The other piece that we think about is, is innovation behind our technology and how we can continue to drive down these energy requirements. Every direct air capture solution needs to grapple with this, and there is a, a certain amount of energy intensity associated with removing 410 parts per million mm-hmm. CO2 from the atmosphere. So in some ways, we are limited by thermodynamics, but we want to push as close to that thermodynamic limit as possible. Yeah. And uh, Josh, same to you. I mean, do you imagine that your process can get much more energy efficient as it goes on? Or is it sort of like the, it's pretty fixed? I, I think that there is absolutely a, a, a you know, a, a, an upper an upper ceiling that we're we're fighting up against that's just set like noah said by by thermodynamics right and co2 the only reason we're able to actually capture it is because it wants to be captured mm-hmm. and so the inverse of that is that to release it from any material capturing it you have to put in energy and and that energy tends to be hard to uh hard to get around unless you change the chemical reaction which you're using to capture the co2 with in the first place our approach to dealing with this problem is by attacking it at the very beginning of our process design. Uh, you know, we we've described our process here as a as a Brita filter for CO two. We're supercharging this Brita filter by essentially running power directly through it to reduce the amount of waste electricity that's going to the environment in terms of waste heat or or, or waste uh, waste power loses loss in some other way. And so we're thinking about this from the very beginning of our process design. And it's something that we are are always working on and always improving. And I think that, um, you know, CO2, CO2 is a tricky molecule to, to, to capture efficiently, but we're working on a way that we think can take into consideration some of the other aspects of the process we're designing around it to really make the energy requirements as low as they can be. Um, there are some remarkably wonky and detailed comments coming in, Laurie. I feel like uh, th- this is an Im- the listeners are very impressive this morning. Um, let's get first to just like some of the like raw comments here. Um, one is a uh, listener writes in to say, from what I've read, these methods are expensive and uncertain in effectiveness. This carbon recapture approach has the potential to morph into a delaying tactic used by the fossil fuel industries. Spraying reflective tiles into the atmosphere is another idea with uncertain long-term effects uh, or cost. Mitigation is the only way. We're going to get to a little bit more of this in the sea, but what's your, in our, in our next segment, but what's your perspective on this, Lauren, how, how you've heard people thinking about this. Yeah, well, let's think about um, this bathtub analogy, right? Where So we have the bathtub is um, our atmosphere, and there's a lot of water in there. We're getting close to the top of the bathtub. There are ways that we can prevent it from spilling over. Spilling over would mean that we are getting into a, a, a sort of uninhabitable realm of the planet. Um, so one is we, we turn off the tap, right? So we stop using all this carbon, which is absolutely essential, right? 90% of what we need to do, even more than that, is, is that, right? It's mitigating, mitigating, mitigating. And then we still have a lot of water in that bathtub and we need to take it out. So like we're going to either we're going to scoop it out. Right. And so that's what where the carbon removal comes in. And that will happen through some natural processes and through enhancing these natural processes like no till agriculture or um, treating forests in a different way, um, wetland preservation. But it is still not enough to hit the targets that we want to hit. And so that's sort of why we're having this conversation about carbon removal. Uh, I think most people would wish we we weren't having it. (laughs) But we're at this point now where we've put so much carbon into the atmosphere that we need to. Yeah. 
We're talking about carbon removal as one solution to combat climate change and the Bay Area companies who are involved with the effort. Joined by Laura Clavins, climate reporter for KQED, Danny Cullenwood, a climate economist and a lawyer focused on the design and implementation of climate policy. Josh Santos, co-founder and CEO of Noya, which is one of these direct air capture you know, carbon removal companies. And Noah McQueen, co-founder and head of research with Heirloom, another carbon capture technology company. I'm Alexis Magical. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about carbon removal as one solution to combat climate change and the Bay Area companies that are involved with that effort. Joined by Noah McQueen, co-founder and head of research of Heirloom, a carbon capture company, and Josh Santos, co-founder and CEO of Noya, another one. Also joined by Laura Clivens, climate reporter for KQED, because this is an edition of Climate Fix, which is Forum's partnership with the KQED science team. And we've got Danny Cullenward, an eminent climate economist and lawyer focused on the design and implementation of uh, climate policy. Want to add one more voice to this uh, discussion. Dan Ress is a staff attorney with the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment, which is a national environmental justice organization providing legal organizing and technical assistance to grassroots groups. Uh, welcome to the show, Dan. Good morning. Um, talk to me about your perspective on... Um, uh, on carbon removal. I know there has been some pushback at different times and from different environmental justice groups. Um, are there things that concern you about how the technology could work? Yeah, I think there's two big picture issues. One is uh, like the specifics of the technology causing local harms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other is uh, if we're relying on carbon removal at the expense of other climate solutions that are uh, more urgent and more proven. Mm-hmm. What are the specifics of the technology causing local harms? Like, talk to me a little bit more about that piece. Like, what are the things specifically that you might be worried about? Uh, well, there's uh, three types of carbon removal. We have um, direct air capture, bioenergy with uh, carbon mm-hmm. capture and storage, and uh, natural carbon storage. Um, so we're we're supportive of natural carbon storage and more concerned about the former, uh, the first two. So um, the bioenergy we oppose direct air capture. Uh, we're still figuring out. Um, But basically, uh, you're increasing local pollution, um, both from uh, how you're generating energy at the facilities, depending on how you generate, especially with bioenergy, and then uh, the the chemicals that you're using to capture the carbon. Um, And then there's all sorts of risks down the line as you're transporting the carbon, storing the carbon, potentially using the carbon. um, There are a lot of risks that come uh, with each of those stages. Yeah. 
Um, I imagine as the state of California has baked more and more carbon removal into our future plans, um, this is something that you don't support? You know, we, we do support natural carbon removal, as I mentioned, um, which has a lot of co-benefits. Um, I think the scale at which California is planning to rely on direct air capture is really concerning. Um, and the inclusion of bioenergy with uh, CCS is, um, I think, particularly alarming um, because it doesn't actually remove carbon um, as it's done on the ground. So uh, we're, we're particularly concerned that that's being talked about as carbon removal when it is not and has incredible local harms, um, as we've seen uh, in the past with bioenergy facilities that didn't have CCS, but the, they now want to fire up again with CCS. And CCS for people out there is, you know, carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and sequestration. Um, you know, Danny Collinward, I know that you share this same skepticism or at least worry about the state baking too much, you know, 100 million tons of carbon removal into um, into our long-term plans. How has that evolved uh, over time? Like, it feels like it has amped up uh, as we. it's gotten more difficult to imagine making the kind of cuts that we actually need to to make to meet our goals. Yeah, I find myself really, really torn because I think the more I think about, you know, the need to stabilize temperatures and, and again, hopefully draw down the, the atmospheric pollution so that we have a safer climate in the future, I think we need to be strongly motivated to work on this issue. At the same time, you know, Dan has raised a number of important points, and I think watching the state climate regulator plan its transition for mid-century, they didn't study deep cuts in emissions. They assumed we'd have a lot of carbon removal, and then instead of saying we'll have a lot of carbon removal and deep cuts, they didn't really explore the deepest cuts we need to make the transition. So we're seeing in the state, as frankly scholars are watching around the world with national pledges, governments are saying we don't need to quite cut as much as maybe we should because we can rely on this. And that's a, that's a way of working on this uh, this technology area that I think does harm. And, and I just really want to uplift, mm. I think the environmental justice community in all of these conversations raises the alarm first. We, we need to be paying attention to that. And I say that as somebody who thinks there's a very large and important role for these areas mm. to, to succeed in, but they need to complement and not substitute for the deep cuts. And I, I want to add something that a lot of the communities that are are bringing up these alarms are in places that have historically borne the brunt of oil extraction. Um, and so that also happens to be a good location to put that carbon that is removed mm -hmm. from the atmosphere to sort of like pump it back down underground because there are geologic formations that happen to make that a, also a good place to pull the oil out of the ground. So um, so then asking these communities to accept a whole new industry, you know, that we don't yet know um, all the details, we haven't worked out the details yet, that is a lot, right? And so I think that that requires a lot of relationship building and a lot of transparency and a lot of involvement of those communities. Yeah. Um, let's start bringing in some callers here. Thanks for your patience, y'all. Uh, Noah in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. My, uh, yeah, I'm a restoration ecologist. I've worked for various federal and state agencies. And I think one of the key things we need to remember is that, uh, ecological restoration is already the, by far the cheapest and most effective way to sequester carbon. And that doesn't mean we should only do that instead of technological solutions, but it means we need to be really careful about where we place those technological solutions and make sure that the large infrastructure we use to sequester carbon is not covering up area that could be restored ecologically. Um, yeah, that's the crux of my comment. Thank you. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, and, and I just wanted to add with that, um, 
uh, yeah, there seems to be there's a limited resource here, which is space and land. Um, another thing to think about it. those things are the cheapest. Another thing to think about is that sometimes they are not as stable as we want them to be, unfortunately, because of what we have done to the planet. So, for example, um, if you had uh, carbon stored in a forest that caught fire, um, that carbon is once again in the atmosphere. Did you want to ask me? In addition, um, I guess I'll also add that one of the benefits of a technology like direct air capture is it doesn't have to be on the land that we use for things like agriculture or could use for reforestation or afforestation. It can be in completely different locales, and that is one of the advantages of some of the technological solutions is that they're more agnostic to where you can actually place them around the globe. All right, let's go to uh, Eid in Berkeley. Welcome. Hi, good morning. So my background is 15 years at the University of California, Berkeley, in the physics and the nuclear engineering department, uh, PhDs, and also taught physics, chemistry, and uh, other mm-hmm. science subjects at Cal and National, National University in San Jose. The idea is great, but let me remind you, for every gallon of gas you burn in your car, you're producing 19.8, about 20 pounds of carbon dioxide. So your guest idea is great, but it's minute. Also, it is very well known. All what you need is just carbon, uh, excuse me, uh, calcium hydroxide that takes it. You will have a huge problem with the quantity, huge. And second problem is uh, where are you going to store all of the uh, calcium product that you're going to, to, to keep? The best idea is to reduce immediately. We have to cut down all what we can as far as heating, cooling, uh, driving, and also eating animals, because a lot of this, uh, especially methane gas, which is 90 times as, as effective in global warming as carbon dioxide, is produced by, unfortunately, animals, mostly cows. We need to do something immediately. But, you know, your, your guest idea is great, but only work in my very small, tiny, minute uh, uh, case. And also storage is going to be a huge, huge, huge problem. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for bringing that subject to the uh, to the audience. And thanks thank you for, for your uh, perspective. Noah, you want to uh, respond? Absolutely. And I, I think you, you bring up some great points. We absolutely need deep and very thorough decarbonization of the global economy in addition to removing CO2 from our atmosphere. And decarbonization must take precedence, but we also have to focus on removal. Um, with respect to the, the comments on calcium hydroxide, um, it is very well known it will take CO2 up very quickly from our atmosphere, and we've accelerated that process. But one thing I do want to emphasize is we use our material cyclically, so we actually reuse and continue to reuse the calcium material to capture CO2 from our atmosphere, which enables us to be more sustainable. And at you know the scale that we're capturing a billion tons of CO2, we're using less than 0.1% of global limestone's yearly production since it's used in industries like cement and lime production. Um, with respect to byproducts or calcium products, um, we can actually use them or upcycle them in different industries. This type of material is used in cement production, it's used for lime production, it's used for pulp and paper, and there's there's a myriad of different applications that we can actually tap into there. So trying to make the process as sustainable and scalable as possible in that respect. I, I feel like one thing that I've been hearing a lot lately is everybody referring to, you know, the excellent movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, as a, a, a what we need to, how we need to think about climate. So I totally agree with what the caller has just said. Um, and I think, right, that's, there are big chunks of it. So, like, let's all pick our piece and, and, and go deep in your piece. Yeah. Um, Danny Cullenward, as, as someone who has really been in the weeds on, you know, California climate policy for, for quite some time, and understanding that we're trying to avoid this kind of moral hazard of the idea 
of uh, carbon removal kind of giving us this out. What is the right and like kind of responsible way to encourage the development of a technology that we kind of know we're going to need at some point without sort of giving ourselves the out from doing the hard work of creating a lower carbon society? I mean, I think the number one thing is you need to make sure that the way you support carbon removal doesn't give permission to keep polluting. And I think, unfortunately, that's exactly what we saw in the state's planning process around its long-term climate strategy. So I think, you know, the kind of thing that's needed is a way of mobilizing financial support and other sorts of policy support that doesn't say it's okay to keep polluting because we're investing in these early stage efforts. And there, there is a bill from a state senator, um, a Josh Becker, that would propose such an idea. I mean, there are ways to do this, but I just want to, again, echo the comments of my colleague Dan from from the environmental justice movement that you know what we are seeing on the ground right now is this talk this very important talk where I, I join Noah and Josh completely in the importance of working on these issues but that's immediately getting turned around to say well we can fire up this biomass plant uh, next to a high school in the Central Valley that has the worst air quality in the nation and that's exactly the wrong way to get started on this uh, even though I do think we should get started in the right way and I hope we can have that conversation what is the politics of this? Because it's, you know, when I look at it, there, I don't see the people like necessarily supporting that position. Like, so who is who is behind kind of let's go, you know, down the, the slippery slope of this moral hazard? Like who who's actually there? Is that like the oil companies and entrenched industrial interests and things? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because the, a lot of the policy support structures are based on things like carbon offsets, whether that's run by the state or in, in the voluntary carbon markets. The idea is you're selling credit or, 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 you know, reflecting these outcomes and giving people essentially the right to keep polluting. And that's, you know, been one of the main ways people have talked about monetizing this uh, and, and creating a, an entry point for businesses to get started here. So the sort of easy ways to get money flowing to support these industries can perpetuate the the race to the bottom and moral hazard dynamics. And we just we just need to be open about that. The, the problem is because these efforts are new and because they're expensive, they're competing with lots of other things that are expensive or worthy. Um, and right now we have a you know a budget shortfall at the state level. So it's it's not the easiest time to be thinking about all of these things. But I think anyone who's taking the climate science seriously and looking out to the future ought to be saying we need to figure out a way that respects the physics, that respects this is going to take work and it's going to go slower than we want it to. We have to get started because of the scale of the problem. I just am deeply worried that the way we've been getting started is setting us up for that false dichotomy between carbon removal and cutting emissions. And if we get stuck there, it's not going to work. Is there a place that's doing it better? Some other state, Washington, New York, something? I don't think we're seeing a ton of policy activity yet. Governments are slow to catch up. I actually think, curiously, that the, right now the private sector, and you mentioned this collaborative of, of five technology companies who've put forward almost a billion dollars where they're saying to companies, if you can go out and demonstrate this, we'll be your first customer, basically. So you're seeing some really transformative private sector support right now. I hope that will be matched eventually by more public sector support. Um, but it, it's a real challenge. And frankly, um, you know, no government is really out ahead on this yet. I think we're just getting started and people are just waking up to the scale of the problem that's in front of us. Yeah. Um, one of our listeners, uh, Warren, writes in to say, you know, the carbon must remain locked up for centuries, long after the founders and owners of these companies are gone. A company wanting to pay for a carbon offset and a company supplying an offset both have an imperative to maximize profit, not to reduce greenhouse gases. Doing both is a win-win, but when those are in conflict to some degree, as they inevitably will be, profit must prevail. Our government and independent consensus-based science must oversee the industry far more than has been done for other technology-based industries in the past. Um, what have you heard about that, uh, Danny? 
about like how this could be regulated in a way that uh, you know allows um, for the the temporal scale of the problem that we're dealing with. I mean, it's it's really central to this issue. CO two is a forever pollutant, and so our removal solutions need to have storage that is comparable to that time frame. Um, and exactly as as the listener suggests, it's really hard to make a company or a person commit to that kind of a time frame. Mm-hmm. Some of the storage mechanisms here, if they're done right, will naturally keep being that way. Um, if you successfully put CO two underground, um, you can you can expect that it'll stay put for a very long time. If you form it into a mineral on the surface, it's going to probably stay put for a very long time as well. So there really aren't behavioral contingencies there. Um, and, and I'm I'm torn because the idea that there needs to be oversight, anyone watching what's going on with carbon offsets, I mean, it's a dumpster fire out there. It is really, really bad. And I think one natural reaction is for people to say we should have government regulation. The flip side is where governments run offset programs, we see regulatory capture. And there's no greater example than California's deeply dysfunctional and I think just completely broken carbon offsets program. I would not want the people running our broken carbon offsets program to be the people in charge of figuring out whether you know the two guests you have uh, from Heirloom and from Noya are doing a good job. It's probably not going to end up any better. And I'm struck that right now the private sector support efforts have been much more thoughtful and comprehensive than the government regulators. Mm. Dan uh, Rest, staff attorney with the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment. When you think about the kind of regulatory environment, you think about like how you would like these companies to be regulated for, you know, to make sure that communities that have already been impacted for so long won't be impacted more. How, how do you see it? Like, uh, well, definitely underregulated right now, where we we don't have any of these technologies in the state yet, um, and so um, we, we uh, secured a few protections for communities um, and some legislation last year, including a ban on the use of captured carbon for enhanced oil recovery. Uh, if you don't know, most captured carbon, both nationally and globally, is used for oil recovery, enhanced oil recovery, uh, which is sort of a, a strange thing since you're actually increasing the amount of carbon uh, released to the atmosphere if you do that. That is not allowed in California, which is a a great protection that we secured. Uh, But we have uh, a whole list of dozens of other protections we want to see to make sure that frontline communities uh, don't, you know, bear the risks and the harms from these technologies. Um, And a lot of that will get to, you know, I'm I'm strongly support what what Danny was talking about, uh, about and and what the the caller mentioned Mm -hmm. about um, long-term accountability. Um, that also includes some of the risks that can be long-term. You know, um, there's definitely science suggesting that carbon underground uh, will turn, will mineralize, um, but the timescale is a little unknown, and these geologies are really complex, and the studies are mostly done and funded by uh, oil companies. Um, and so I think there's a little suspicion, at least on our part. Um, and, it, you know, at least in theory, this can leak and can ruin groundwater. Uh, it can pull heavy metals it forms acid in the presence of water carbon dioxide, becomes carbonic acid, to leach heavy metals into groundwater supplies, uh, potentially, and can cause some really serious problems, um, especially in a place where you have a whole bunch of holes in the ground from previous oil recovery, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where I live in Kern County, you know, we have 100,000 holes in the ground, um, and we're expecting the carbon won't leak along those pathways. And I, you know, I, I think we're pretty worried about that. Yeah. So uh, th- there's a lot of work that needs to be done at all stages, capture, transportation, use, and storage. Um, and so we uh, have, have a bunch yeah. of specifics for, for each of those uh, parts of the process. Thank you so much, Dan. 
Um, we have been talking about carbon removal as part of our Climate Fix collaboration with the KQED Science Desk. Thanks so much for joining me, Laura Clivens, climate reporter Thank you. for KQED. We've also been joined by Danny Cullenwood, climate economist and lawyer focused on the design and implementation of climate policy. Josh Santos, co-founder and CEO of Noya a carbon removal startup. Noah McQueen, co-founder and head of research at Heirloom, another carbon capture startup. And we've also been joined by Dan Race, who you just heard, staff attorney with the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment. You've been listening to Forums, Climate Fix. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.